Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, I'm talking to the legendary documentary maker, Adam Curtis, about his new films on the BBC, which try to understand why, in the age of the individual, we all feel so powerless. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, a literary magazine full of politics and a political magazine full of literature. Listeners can subscribe at a special rate of just £1 an issue by using the URL lrb.me talk. That's lrb.me talk. Adam, if I could, I'd like to start in the middle of the series in episode three. I know you've made films in the past about Richard Nixon, and he's a central figure in this story too. And he obviously embodies the paranoid style, among other things. But there are two events that seem to me pivotal for the story that you're telling that connect to Nixon. One is the Nixon shock, as it's called, when the dollar became detached from gold and money started to sort of mean whatever people wanted it to mean. And the other was the trip to China. Just, can you just tell me a bit about where those two events fit into your story? I, I took them as being central. Are, are they central for you? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're pivotal moments. That I mean, what I was trying to do in the series was show how a number of different, what you might call rivers, have led to the strange state we're in now. And they are two of the big events that pushed events a particular way. I mean, I think that what's called the Nixon shock was a thing that President Nixon at the time, I think, saw as just temporary. It was brought about because the fight in the Vietnam War was leading to all kinds of economic problems at home. And he decided that the only way to deal with this was to temporarily take the international currencies off the gold standard, which meant that currencies floated freely and bounced against each other. He saw it as temporary. In fact, what then happened was that very quickly he got involved in the Watergate scandal and it sort of carried on. And as it carried on, the banks, who had previously been very much under the control of government ever since the chaos of the 1930s, suddenly realised they could start trading currencies against each other. And out of that sort of chaos came the international global financial system that we have today. And it is one that became a complex system that at the time, politicians didn't think they could control any longer. So it, it was not only significant in what it was, but also for the big shock it had for politicians because they felt that something was happening that was global in scale, was so complicated and so, in a sense, irrational in the way it behaved that they couldn't use the old forms of politics to control it. So I think that went very deep into their heads. The visit to to China, which happened in the middle of all this, was at the time seen as a great stroke of statesmanship by Nixon, as in a way the opposite. It was seen as the assertion of, of politics being able to shape and manage the world in, in a predictable way. And he, he, he was seen as heroic doing it. But what I try and show in, in the film is that actually what was happening at that time in China was also the collapse of the certainty of Mao's revolution. As he was approaching death and his wife, Jiang Qing, was planning to take power, in the face of that collapse, what then emerged from that was a system run by Mao's wife's great rival, a man called Deng Xiaoping, who hated ideology. He thought political ideology is what led to disaster. What Deng Xiaoping saw as the the way of dealing with the danger of revolutionary ideas and the chaos it led to was to substitute money for those ideological ideas. And he did it by literally turning China into a giant exporting country that would send cheap goods 
abroad, above all to America and to Europe. And out of that came another global system, which would be, again, politicians would see themselves as unable to control. That system of money, cheap goods, and debt. They aren't the only sources of it, but I do think those two moments are the sort of wellsprings of that sense of global systems that are irrational, so big that they're beyond political control, that have gone very deep into the imagination of politicians in the West. If you if you want to know where the beginnings of modern politics, uncertainty, and its fear of being unable to control the dynamics of history come from, you can sort of locate it back at that moment. I mean, there were other things around at the time, but I, I was trying to dramatise it and show where it came from. As you say, money, in a sense, that word money is the thing that connects the two. Yeah. And I was really struck in the later episodes how often you identify these moments of turmoil, of sort of collective human madness occasionally in all sorts of different parts of the world. And post the Nixon shock, it's as though money has a mind of its own, irrational or rational, and it kind of follows the madness. So frequently you say, and then as it were, the money arrived, and then the money left. That's the feel that that system has. It's always had for me this sense that money is kind of chasing what human beings do around the world as though it were its own thing. And that's a huge shift. It is a huge shift. And it, it is what began to happen at that point, which was that a force that previously politics felt was under its control began to break loose. There is another factor that, that allows it to emerge. That generation that came out of the Second World War were terrified of big ideas, big stories. They'd seen what had happened with Hitler under fascism. And they'd seen it also in totalitarian communism, that people get swept up into these big ideas, big ideologies that, that lead to disaster and horror. And in the face of that, they wanted to create a world in which people would not be swept up by those big ideas. And I think what they looked for was a way of finding something to substitute for that. And money fitted into that very well, because if you look at those philosophers who were emerging in the 1950s, people like Friedrich Hayek, what they argue is that the signals in the marketplace and the money that people then communicate that through can act as a substitute for big ideas of government. And at that time, they would see it as a utopian idea. And I would argue that that, that did rise up. It worked very well with China as part of the system throughout the 1990s through to about 2008. In the process, money was beginning to run out of control. And I would argue, in a sort of simplified way, that after 2008, the money really did run out of control. And things like quantitative easing are strange, weird things that we haven't fully got our heads around yet. That period in the 1970s, including the trip to China, and as you describe it in the film, both with the footage and the music and your voiceover, all these things coming together, these two systems that had seemed at the time to be completely alien to each other, you know, the Cultural Revolution, China, Nixon's America, somehow there was something under the surface that connected them. For a lot of people, that period through the early, mid, late 70s is the birth of what they call neoliberalism now. You frame it through individualism. And I took a big theme of these films to be you want to bridge that. You don't kind of think something happened in the 1970s, which was a shift from one thing to this new system called neoliberalism. The individualism provides a bridge across that time frame. Well, I just don't, I don't buy into the idea of neoliberalism. Okay, that was my question in a way. So tell me why it's individualism and not neoliberalism for you. But it's sort of academics not being able to actually face up to the complexities of it all. They always see it as something that's been done to them rather than something that emerges out of all sorts of complex interactions. What was happening in both China and 
America in the mid-1970s was that idea that politics could actually manage the system, the system of society, was being challenged, obviously in completely different ways. What Nixon was finding is that America's ideal of being able to make the world safe from communism and fighting a war in Vietnam had led to an economic chaos at home, which he tried to solve through economics, because economics at that point was seen as the way to manage the world. It, it, it was rising up and becoming dominant. In fact, what he started was something that began to take on a life of its own. In China, what was happening was that the Cultural Revolution, which began in the mid-1960s, had led to absolute horror and chaos and disaster throughout China. And when Mao died, his widow, Jiang Qing, looked like she was going to take control and push it on even further. And people were terrified of that. And that's why Deng Xiaoping locked her up, basically, and threw away the key and turned away from those big ideas and instead did turn China into a giant production house of cheap goods, which what I say at the end of that third film is that what was beginning to click together across the world was on the one hand, China was going to produce these goods, whilst the banks were beginning to realise that not only could they speculate on money as it bounced around in currencies across the world, they could also lend money around the world. And what we were beginning to see was the two parts of a giant global system beginning to click together. But the crucial thing was both of them were born out of a sense of those who had been in control in politics, a growing feeling that they couldn't control things any longer, that they were too dangerous to control, too complicated to control. And I think the roots of today's uncertainty that you feel in all politics and in all politicians when you meet them and talk to them, there's this underlying uncertainty that they can actually control things and shape the world the way they want it to be. It's rooted at that time in those two moments. They look as though they have no connection, but they do, because they lead in their strange way to that global system that now embraces all of us, and also in the politician's imagination makes them feel very uncertain and very weak. I detected, and you can tell me if, if I'm wrong about this, so I detected a couple of Weberian themes in this, and particularly in that relationship between individualism and the idea of the individual and the politics. You quote him at one point, the iron cage, the idea of the iron cage of modernity and bureaucracy, that there is in the celebration of the individual, the rational individual, often in modern political systems, the, the counter-reaction is to create, to build these larger networks of control which actually become the negation of individuality. And then the other, the other sort of paradox or irony, Weberian, is that individualism is often drawn to charismatic leadership. And some of the people you describe, including perhaps most notably Mao's wife, she's both quintessentially an individualist and creates this version of politics, which is the negation of individualism because it's the worship of the single leader. Am I right in seeing those as Weberian or have I over overread it? I'm not an expert in, in Max Weber, but why I've always been interested in him is because he did seem to predict one of the things that has risen up and is still rising up all around us, which is that in an age of mass democracy, when you have the driving idea of individualism, which says to people, what you want, what you feel inside yourself is the most important thing in the world. When you have that rising up, they become very difficult to manage. It's like you've got millions and millions of squealing piglets going left and right, all over the hills. What? How do you manage them? The old idea of mass democracy was that somehow you'd be able to corral those piglets together into groups that would then be your support, your, your power base. 
That's the old idea of mass democracy. I think by the late 70s, early 80s, which was the beginning of hyper-individualism in, in the West, in America and in Europe, the politicians are beginning to realize you can't do that any longer. You can't assemble groups behind you in what used to be called political parties that would then give you power to challenge unelected power. You can't do that any longer. And in the face of that, the politicians, in a sense, switch sides instead of representing the people because they didn't quite know who they were representing. You know, is, is it this micro group or is it that micro group? In the face of that, they tried to ally themselves with those who said, no, we can manage those people. We can manage them. And it happened at a time in the mid 80s, which I think is an absolutely fascinating moment that no one's really quite examined yet. When, when those people like Ronald Reagan and, and Margaret Thatcher, who had come into power promising to regenerate their countries, really failed. If you look at the 80s in, in America and in Britain, large amounts of factories closed. It, 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 was, it was a terrible disaster. And in the face of that, what Thatcher and Reagan did was give power over to finance and said to them, okay, if the wages aren't going to go up, if the factory jobs aren't there any longer, and everyone's going to end up doing lower paid service jobs, lend them the money. I mean, I'm simplifying it, but that's what began to happen. And out of that became this sort of reformulation of both politics and finance into a thing which I don't think we've fully quite seen the dimensions of yet. And that's why I'm suspicious of the term neoliberalism. It's much more a sort of managed system in which money becomes the dominant force again, where instead of actually promising people better conditions, better wages from their work, you lend them the money with which they can then use to go and buy cheap goods that are coming in from places like China. And in that process, it becomes a managed world. It becomes highly bureaucratic in which you, you administer things. You don't promise people a better world. What you promise them is that you will manage the system so they can go on borrowing money and they can go on buying goods and it becomes a sort of model consumerist world driven by debt. Now, it was a wonderful moment. I mean, I do think we haven't quite realised how extraordinary the period from the mid-80s through to 2008 was. It was like a dream world in which people were allowed to borrow vast amounts of money and buy goods that were so cheap they were extraordinary. And then it crashed in 2008. And when it crashed, people got very angry and, and, and rather frightened because actually that was the moment when the politician should, in the old world, should have been there and said, no, we're going to do this. And the politician didn't know what to do any longer because they'd switched sides effectively. I do think just to call it neoliberalism is to diminish the complexity of what we've lived through since 1986, 1987. And I think that is consistent with a, a version of that period of history which suggests that we oversell or it's oversold to us the idea that there was something called the Thatcher Revolution or the Reagan Revolution and that key events were 79 and 80 where these charismatic in their way, not particularly charismatic, politicians won elections and we, we overemphasize elections as turning points. They very rarely are turning points. And actually the key events were either side. So both under Callaghan and Carter, the beginnings of this managerialism, the IMF, Volcker being appointed to the Federal Reserve. This was nothing to do with Thatcher and Reagan. And then, as you say, later in the 80s, after forms of industrial policy had failed. But we're still slightly hung up on that myth that it was sort of political will and these politicians who asserted a sort of revolutionary perspective. And that, I think, fits with your argument, which is the politicians gave up long before we realised they'd given up. But we still tell that history yeah. organised around elections and political leaders. And that's not the real story. I think there is a very strong argument that says that both the Reagan revolution and the Thatcher revolution by 1986 had completely failed. 
If you look back at their early speeches and their promises to the American and the British people, they say, we are going to bring back the great old industrial glory of the past that has been seen to have failed in the 1970s. In fact, what happened is because they both turned to a strange economics called monetarism, it led to total disaster because they, to, to make it work, they had to raise the interest rates and raising interest rates led to exports just collapsing and swathes of factories. I mean, I know factories had been closing up to then, both in America and in Britain, but it just accelerated on a massive level. And by the 86, 87, you had effectively deindustrialized large areas of America and Britain. And in the face of that, they gave power to the financial system that said, no, we'll deal with this. We'll lend the money. That's not a sort of return to ruthless market capitalism. That's the rise of something else. To go back to your question about Weber, it's a system to manage people through what appears to be a neutral, value-free thing in which money becomes the measure of everything. Because what's really fascinating is that at the same time as the banks are lending people money, the idea that money can become the measure of everything begins to spread throughout politics and through through social administration. It's what we have today. Everything deals with what's called managed outcomes, and everything is assessed by its utility, its value. And again, that is the spread of money, the idea that you can actually judge things in monetary terms. So even if, for example, if you apply for a um, grant from the Arts Council these days, you actually have to uh, demonstrate somehow its utility. It's this idea that you can measure everything in a rational way through in monetary utilitarian terms. That spreads everywhere. And that, to go back to your Weber thing, that's a management system which becomes very rigid because its real problem is that it, it just wants to keep everything stable. And as we know, history is not stable. History is dynamic. And that, I think, is the great fault line of our times, is that you have a whole class, not just of politicians, but of administrators, who want to keep that cage firm, static and stable. But as we've seen over the last 20 years, waves of events and strange catastrophes come and smash into that and begin to distort it. I mean, this is the one thing I don't think Weber ever went on to, is what happens when that iron cage gets hit by the giant events of history. I mean, I think he did think that the tension between the iron cage and the pull of charismatic leadership was always going to be there. And it's a consistent theme in your films. And then that story that you've just told then intersects with two others, which emerge in some ways through the 70s and 80s. So one is the rise of a new kind of behavioralism, behavioral economics, and a new way of thinking about human psychology. And the other is, of course, the invention of the internet. Just say a bit about how then those, because these are complex systems intersecting with complex systems. Let's take the behavioral economic story first. How do you think that then interacts with this new managerialism? Well, I've always been fascinated by behavioural psychology because I remember when it first emerged, it emerged sort of into public view in the mid-1980s. And initially it was seen by all the liberals and the left as a wonderful thing because it seemed to be challenging the simplistic market capitalism that Reagan and Thatcher had brought in. It said, no, people aren't rational. The original idea of the theorists behind Thatcher and Reagan, the economists, was that people were driven by what rational self-interest it was called. And the behavioral psychologists came along and said, no, 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 no. Our studies show that actually people are completely irrational in their behavior. And initially, the left and the liberals went, yes, great. That's right. We want to hear this because it shows that Reagan and Thatcher are really bad. But if you, if you look at what the behavioral psychologists then went on and said, it was a crucial element in this shift. They said, okay, if people are irrational, 
then what we need to do is to find ways of what they call nudging them, adjusting them, priming them to actually behave in a rational way. So instead of actually questioning the system, questioning the economic and the social system that was beginning to emerge in the middle 1980s and early 1990s, what they said is, no, we are going to find techniques by which you can actually send people messages that will unconsciously affect their behavior so they can be adjusted and made to fit into the system better. At which point, what you have is yet another component of this managed system beginning to emerge. It's accepting the system for what it is. It never questions it. It just says people are fundamentally irrational. Now, why I find that strange is because if you go back to the roots of the modern individualism, it was an optimistic idea of individuals. It said, no, we don't believe in the Freudian idea that people are driven by dark forces. People can actually, if liberated from the old constraints of patrician control and elitism, will become strong, confident individuals. That was the whole idea of individualism in the 1950s. By the 1980s, and this again is a paradox, at the very time at which you, the politics of Reagan and Thatcher seem to be celebrating the idea of individualism, what you actually have, again, emerging through behavioral psychology is another element that is saying, no, actually, people are much weaker than we think. And because they're much weaker than we think, they need to be managed. They need to be adjusted in order to make the system behave better. I'm not saying it was in any way evil or a conspiracy. I really think they thought they were doing good. But it again, it led to this idea that the world is a static thing, that it just needs to be adjusted so it can work better. And the, the sad thing is, is that none, none of the liberals or the left really noticed this. They still celebrated it as a challenge to the old idea of bad Thatcher, bad Reagan. And then when that system of adjustment intersects with another complex system, which is digital technology, and the internet, and this is before even we get onto the age of the social network and the giant technology companies. But that ability, technical ability to make certain kinds of adjustments, that does turbocharge it. I mean, some of this has to do with simply whether the capacity is there to reach individuals on the requisite scale. And again, as you suggest, some of this is first seen in China. I mean, one of the illusions, again, is this is all a product of Western market capitalism. But China is often ahead in some respects of this new form of politics. Remember that the internet is an engineering idea. It was created by engineers. And what it's based on is the, the idea of a feedback system, that you can receive messages back from millions of people and adjust the, adjust the system to them. I always feel really soppy about the original utopian ideas of the internet in, in the early 1990s, because they said, look, this was the first time when actually people can send messages to each other, avoiding old forms of patrician control, old forms of elite judgment and filtering of, of what those messages are. And out of that will come a new kind of society. The problem with it is underlying that idea is this idea of feedback. And feedback is, again, a static system. It's always trying to adjust back to what it knows. The problem with the internet is it doesn't actually have any other ideas than what it is. I know that sounds a bit odd, but it can't conceive of anything beyond itself. It's always wanting to adjust back to what what it is. I mean, the best metaphor for it is that Amazon slogan, which is, if you like that, then you'll like this. What the internet is very, very, very good at doing is monitoring you, seeing how you behave in your everyday purchasing behavior, all sorts of other behavior, 
comparing that behavior to the patterns of millions and millions of other people's behavior, and then actually suggesting to you something that will keep you within that pattern. It's not a form of control. It's a form of adjustment to keep things stable. But to go back to Weber, it becomes a sort of iron cage that begins to encase you, because what it limits you to is things that have always happened in the past. The thing about the the, the internet as a feedback system is it can't imagine something that hasn't already happened. It's always looking at patterns from the past. In a way, it's a sort of modern ghost story. What you get through your screen suggested to you every day is things based upon patterns of your own past behavior compared to the patterns of past behavior of millions of other people. You're constantly haunted and pursued by those old patterns of other people's behavior. And it is like a modern ghost story because what it does is it traps you in that room with those people and it never offers you a door out of it. And that's its that's its failing as it is presently constructed. I still think that the internet could be reconstructed in another way to become a much more dynamic and progressive thing. And it sort of got captured in this very rigid feedback system. But again, you're right. It's part of that way of managing things. So the world becomes static and repeatable. That's their great aim of, of this, this sort of modern engineering idealism, is that you can always make the world repeatable and therefore manageable. And in a sense, it is a form of idealism. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I want to come on to the question about how this might be reconfigured and the themes in the last 20 minutes of the final film about what the future might be. But on this question, again, it's something that struck me as connecting all of the many, many different kinds of stories, not just different stories, but different kinds of stories that you tell, trying to get to this emotional history of why we all feel so lost. And I think we do all feel lost. And part of it, it seems to me, where we are offered variety, change, even the prospect of volatility and uncertainty, actually, there is an underlying cage of stability. But at the same time, where things are presented to us as stable, that's often where the volatility is. And again, you have two emblematic moments. One is the 2008 crash, which of course is a moment where what seemed to be stable turned out to be anything but. But the other is the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, and you, you talk about the ways in which the, the spooks, the, the spies said, you know, we have this new rational system, we have these new ways of gathering data and information and so on, and we can monitor what's going on. And they were completely blind. I mean, completely. And I remember it. I'm not that old, but I remember it. It was like a bolt from the blue. And, the, you know, the, the old Sovietologists were still writing. And you talk about Percy Craddock, you know, people who couldn't believe it. And again, those two events in, in your story seem to me to connect. That kind of blindness brought about by this fake stability. Well, it is a fake stability because it, it is based on this idea that somehow... You, you can hold everything stable. And you're completely right. It is astonishing. And I mean, it is the, the ultimate evidence 
of the uselessness of the present people in charge of this system is that again and again they fail to tell us what's about to happen. First of all, they fail completely with the Soviet Union. I mean, it was astonishing. No one saw it coming. I remember it as well. But then they also fail to predict September 2001. Fair enough. They then fail to predict that there were no weapons of mass destruction. You know, despite all the intelligence agencies are telling you that there are. The journalists, the economists, everyone fails to predict the crash of 2008. And the journalists, the economists, the think tankers and all the others fail to predict Donald Trump and Brexit. Again and again and again, they have failed. Really, the underlying thing, which I do try and question at the end of the films, but I think is a really big thing that's beginning to emerge, is that that idea that what they call big data can predict the future might be a complete myth. It just, they can't. One of the things I was astonished by, which I didn't put in the film because I just didn't have time, was that the National Security Agency, which is one of the biggest bureaucracies in the world, in America, has spent the last 19 to 20 years monitoring the data, the phone calls, the internet behavior of millions and millions and millions of Americans. And by their own admission, they have never managed to find a terrorist, ever, throughout all of that. It's an astonishing, weird and strange thing that for 19 years, hundreds of thousands of men and women have been listening to data, monitoring data, analysing the patterns, looking for what they call the footprints, joining up the dots. Yet they have naturally managed to find nothing, absolutely nothing. There is a really interesting thing. It goes back to science, actually, is that what began to emerge with the rise of the internet in the early 1990s was this idea that somehow you didn't look for logic or causation any longer. What you looked for were the patterns. I deal with this in what's called the rise of complexity theory in the early 1990s, which entranced people like Dominic Cummings. This idea that somehow through data, you can see a complex pattern of reality that to simple humans is hidden. It's remarkably similar, actually, to how conspiracy theories work. You look for the hidden patterns, not for the logic. Whereas the real truth of the fact is, when science is called upon to actually follow logic and causation, it can work brilliantly well, as we've seen with the invention of the vaccines in eight to nine months. That's old-fashioned science following causation logic. The idea that data can actually show you a hidden reality. There's no real evidence for this, as I would argue in the National Security Agency, that it's, again, one of the myths of this managed world, that somehow you can see a hidden reality, both in human behavior and in human minds, that they themselves can't see. But by saying that, they diminish our sense of confidence and weakness. I mean, I do think the underlying thing, which I was trying to get at in all these films, which I still don't fully understand, is why In the age of the individual, we have all ended up so weak, so frightened, so uncertain about the future that we're absolutely terrified of moving forward, which blocks us off from actually embracing new ideas, which might make us more confident, more certain, and actually make the world a better place. You hint, I think it's in the last film, at the idea that we've been so oversold the ability of this new technology to predict And yet the global economy at the moment is almost based on that. And the wealth of the giant technology firms, after all, they're just in the advertising business. That's all they do. And yet it's based on the idea that they are able to identify in advance what it is that we want. And I'm not sure I don't understand this either. 
that how dangerous it is that we built an entire global economic system around this idea, because there is some suspicion that that's a bit of a scam too. Yes. When you ask people, are you steered by this kind of online advertising? Very few people are. And yet somehow it's generated mind-boggling distributions of wealth and power. As well as that, it's generated vast amounts of cash, I mean, trillions of dollars, which those companies are sitting on and not actually using investing in the economy at all with because they use it as a weapon to buy up anything that threatens their monopolies and just bring it into their system. But beyond that, I think the next scandal that's waiting to break is that actually a lot of this might be a scam. It came out at the time of the dot-com crash and was then accelerated by the 9-11 attacks. What Google said to people was, by studying the data, we can actually predict humans' behaviours down to the individual level better than anything else can ever do. We've solved the age-old problem of advertising. We can actually rationally predict how people will do it. And in the mood of fear and uncertainty after 9-11, that took hold very deeply in people's imaginations. I think it's beginning to be challenged on two levels. One I deal with in the films, which is that actually... The big scandal that's emerging in behavioral psychology at the moment is that many of the major experiments that were held to prove that you could nudge or adjust people without them realizing it have proved to be unrepeatable, that they can't actually repeat those experiments, which raises the question that that whole idea may not be true. But there's something else emerging beyond that, which I didn't deal with in the films because I just didn't have time. It's a question that you find with a lot of advertising people is, are Google's promises that they can actually predict people's behavior and what they will do true? Can they do that? I stumbled upon this story about a young economist working for eBay of all places. He's called Mr. Tudelis got suspicious about this. And he persuaded eBay in America to stop advertising in a third of America for three months. The marketing department were absolutely terrified of this. They said, if we stop advertising on Google, our market in eBay will collapse. So he said, let's just experiment by taking one third of America and stopping it for three months. And they did that, despite the marketing department. And what he discovered is that actually their sales remained absolutely stable. Nothing changed. So they did it for another three months. Nothing changed. And what Mr. Tadalus argues is that really, maybe it's just a scam. What Google always say to you is, no, look, we've got this data which shows that actually the people did buy this the moment after we showed them the advert. What Mr. Tadalus says is, well, it's a bit like sending someone with a flyer advertising pizzas to the lobby of a pizza restaurant. And you give each person one of those flyers as they come into the restaurant and they walk out with a pizza. It looks like it's your flyer that's done it, but it wasn't. It's a pizza restaurant. And his argument is that what Google are brilliant at doing is spotting what you've been wanting. They don't persuade you. They're good at seeing what you're doing at this present moment. Beyond that, they're not very good at anything. And like a lot of scams, it's both a mixture of this kind of newfangled smoke and mirrors and very old fashioned, as you said, cash, money, power, influence, lobbying. These companies do now have the power to hold this together. I've always wondered, I've never understood how we can have moved to an economy where advertising, which I always thought was the add-on, ordinary economic activity, which I thought was the underlying basis, has become the add-on. And at some point, it feels like it must fit that pattern that what looks stable is most volatile, just as what looks volatile is most stable. It's what I was gently trying to suggest throughout the series, that actually what we've got at the moment may be actually much more fragile than we think, not just here, but also in China. And I think you're absolutely right. It is astonishing that the biggest corporations now 
actually make nothing. They don't do anything. They they literally target you with adverts for something you've already bought. It it's quite strange. Whilst at the same time persuading you that they're magical. But I think the magic is beginning to go. I really do. The mood is shifting against them. The danger that's going to happen, and I see this in the Biden administration, is that they are going to keep the systems as they are, but regulate them much more ferociously. And I think that's the worst of all worlds, because what you're going to get is a sort of cash money machine that's highly regulated in what it's allowed to tell you in the information it gives out, whilst all the newspapers die. I'm not sure that's very good. Really, what I think should happen is that we should get the internet back from people like Facebook and Google who took it at a time of crisis in, from 2000 onwards and reformulate it so it becomes a nationalized thing in which people can connect properly rather than mediated through money and, and, and targeted all the time. So in the final film, you talk about three possible futures. So one is a genuinely managed dystopian vision of a global system where the power of this technology is used in some way or another. And I suppose a version of China is the model of that, though, as you say, and I agree, I think China is also pretty unstable. The second is this sort of Biden managerial. And the third is a form of liberation. And you have the quote from David Graeber. I'll just read it. The ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something we make and could just as easily make differently. And the, the challenge always for politics is to identify the we in that. And you just talked about we, we need to get back hold of the internet. It always feels like there's a chicken and egg aspect to this. Given the systems that we live under, we need to be some kind of collective we in order to retake control. But these systems have fragmented us into these fake individuals. What's the we there? Who are we who could do that? By we, I meant everyone. Why I like that quote from David Graeber, and it's what I was trying to show throughout these films, is that the mood, but not just on the right, but on the left and the liberals as well, at the present moment, is a sort of sense of inevitability. It's very, very deep. You find it everywhere. Is that when stuff happens, bad stuff happens, it's just inevitable. And that feeling of inevitability has gone so deep. What I was trying to show in the films is, no, what has been constructed today was not only constructed by giant tech barons who are like the old robber barons of the past or grabby politicians or lobbyists. That's true, but it's also being constructed by us wanting to be self-expressive individuals and then finding ourselves, when things go wrong, alone and frightened. And instead of actually turning around and finding a way to challenge the bad things because we feel lonely and frightened, we start to feel that everything is inevitable. I was trying to say, no, look, We've all done this together. Everyone plays different roles in it. And I choose a lot of characters to try and show you all the different roles that people have played, some on the left, some on the right, from Nixon through to revolutionaries. But we all built this together. And if we manage to build it together, and some of it is very good, we can actually make it differently. And therefore, what we have to do is find, again, a new form of collectivism in the age of the squealing piglets. How do you find a way of reforming a collectivism that yet at the same time allows people still to feel that they are confident, empowered individuals. Because individualism isn't going to go back into the box. And it's not just in the West. People like Jiang Qing in China were harbingers of what was happening and is happening there. It's the question of how you square that circle. How do you actually allow people still to feel that they are in control of their own lives, that they're not being told by snobby patricians at places like the BBC 
how, what to think and how to behave. How do they feel that they're in control of what they do and in their own destiny, yet at the same time can also feel confident that they're part of something that will change things in the future. And I think that's waiting to be invented. I think that's where the next politics is going to come from. I suspect that the internet could be part of that if it could be taken back from those people who have narrowed it and distorted it and weakened it and chiseled away at its its possibility and its promise. Um, but that would require a confident political class to say, no, we're taking it back. But I don't know whether that's going to happen or not. Beyond that, the new politics will find a way of allowing you and me, who are all arch individuals, to carry on feeling that, yet also feel something, I don't know, which hasn't probably been invented yet, an excitement of, whilst feeling that, also be part of something that really can change things. Because that's the thing that's been lost in that mood of inevitability. That sense that, no, we actually can change the world. We could make it something different. And instead of feeling, oh my God, there's another thing happened. Oh dear, it's terrible and hunkering down. You know when things go wrong on aircraft, you're you're told to adopt the brace position and you're absolutely terrified to look out the window because you can see the wing going up and down. That's where we are at the moment. And I just think the new politics has got to find a way of breaking us out of that brace position. I genuinely don't know how it's going to happen, but you can sort of feel that it's got to happen, really, or you're going to live in the iron cage forever. So I've long felt that one of our problems is that we have a very rigid understanding of what democracy is, because it was very successful for a long time, including in that sort of dreamland, great moderation period. And we're fixated on particular kinds of change, which are on the whole, very superficial, of which electoral change is the most obvious example. I'm amazed by how much elections still matter, but how much energy and emotion is put into waiting for the next election, the great moment of change, when we kind of know that the change is often superficial. And in your films, and for people who haven't seen your films, I should say this conversation does not capture anything of the extraordinary visuals, as well as the music, but incredible images. And with Biden, though, like most people, I think I feel quite hopeful about Biden, prefer Biden to Trump. He symbolizes something because if you look at a picture of him from, I don't know, 12 years ago and now, his face has been completely smoothed out and he has that slightly rabbit in the headlights look, whatever was done to him. And you use footage of him, which is even more washed out and, and hyper colorful. And yet if you think of the emotional energy that went into getting us beyond Trump, and yet as you describe it in your films, the Biden quote-unquote revolution, which is how it's being described by many people at the moment. The idea that this is the change seems to me to be a really profound illusion. But that's one of the things that we're trapped in. We find it really hard to think about democratic change outside of these symbolic events that fit a pattern that we can manage. Real democratic change should be unfamiliar to us. First thing, I don't think you should be too nasty about Joe Biden. I'm trying not to be nasty about him, but he does he does, he does look different than he did 10 years ago. He could become like Lyndon Johnson. He, he's inherited this. And in a way, he's lucky because he didn't actually have to promise anything apart from I'm not Donald Trump. Therefore, he's got a sort of completely blank canvas to paint on. And he might actually do something extraordinary. He has done a deal with the left domestically, and he has promised a great deal of investment. His foreign policy is quite strange. He seems to be trying to push for a new Cold War with China. And many of the people around him come out of that old sort of hawkish foreign policy people. But I do think that you're right about that. What we've lost is this sense that you can actually... It's like we're in a windy bus stop outside a city, waiting for a bus to come along. And we're just stamping our feet and waiting and blowing into the wind while we do that. 
and you you talk about the way I make the films. One of the reasons I make the films like that is because I like making films like that. But I also want to show that it's fun to actually reshape things. You can, use, I mean, in my case, I use music and images and pictures and stories in sort of new new combinations to try and pull back and say, look, you can look at the world this way. You you can look at the world that way. That it's exciting. There's a sort of thrill to it because I find it thrilling. But I think that's thing we've sort of lost in a more general sense. That's why I quoted David Graeber. We made this. And if we made it, we can also do it again. We've lost that sense of it. There is one of the targets I had in the films, that progressive class that used to really believe in changing the world for the better has been sort of, I don't know, it's more than rabbits in the headlights. It's trapped in its own iron cage. I do think that 2016 was a terrible triggering shock to the liberal progressive class, and they still haven't got over it yet. That The very class that they thought they were helping and, and were going to sort of, in a patrician way, make their lives better, the work, what they called the working class, turned around and bit them and showed they didn't care and actually said that they thought what they did was not good. And that shocked that progressive class. And one of the things that shock has led to is this sort of dark sense of inevitability that, oh, there's nothing we can do. It's just going to happen. I mean, it's one of the things problems I have with the climate change movement, although I do think that's beginning to change now, is that for 20 years, the climate change movement has been telling me that the world's going to die and that there's nothing we can really do about it. What's beginning to emerge in things like the Green New Deal is actually what I think is real politics, which is saying, no, we can use technology and also political power to change the whole of society, not only to make it better in the future, but to make it better now. That's really good. But for 20 years, if you look at the climate change movement from 1992 in Rio onwards, it was a sort of doom laden exercise in the best we can do is try and hold the world stable. It became captured by a technical idea of how to solve the world by keeping it stable. If you look at what happened at every conference from Rio in 92 onwards, is they're always saying, no, we just have to keep the world stable to stop it dying. Whereas, in fact, the thrilling thing I find is something like the Green New Deal is the argument that actually, no, we can change the whole world. We can change the structure of power to make it not just safe in the future, but to make it better now. And that's really good. But for 20 years, we didn't do that. And one of the things I'm trying to do in the films is show why that sense of inevitability and trying to hold the world static became corrupted. It is the iron cage that's imprisoned us now, that attitude. And I think the only politics of the future is one that's going to break out of that sense of inevitability. You can watch all six of Adam Curtis's series, Can't Get You Out of My Head, on iPlayer. And I do recommend it, not least. They look amazing. Coming up on Talking Politics, we've got more about the history and the future of the Union. We're going to be talking about Wales. We're going to be talking about England. And there aren't literary festivals yet, but as publishing gears up for the spring and summer, we've got some really exciting books and authors to talk to and about. Linda Colley, Michael Lewis, Neil Ferguson. And on History of Ideas this week, I'm talking about John Rawls. Do please join us for all of that. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Hold up. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 